It is no secret that election, predestination, are a couple of the most daunting theological terms in all the Bible. And probably, uh, if you spent any time in Christianity, you've gone to a church for some time, you, you can sort of have an idea of why that is. Young people, you could have a seat right there. I'll keep an eye on you, okay? That's great. All right, Let's, let me just ask the Lord for prayer, and I just want to explain what we're about to do. Lord, uh, we ask for your help, the help of the Holy Spirit. We know some of the things that we are about to discuss are deep, they are heavy, uh, they are certainly difficult for mortal finite minds to try to grasp, even in the limited sense in which you have revealed it. And so we ask that you would, by your grace, give us the ability to not simply understand these things to the extent you've revealed them, but to also accept it and embrace it. And Lord, I pray that there be questions where there's confusion. Would you give clarity? Um, but I pray that you would uh, shine the glorious grace and hope of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ through this investigation into these doctrines. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're limited in time. I did not take this into account, by the way, until after Wednesday. I thought, oh, we're doing the Lord's table before, so I'm going to have even less time than I thought. So what I'm going to try to do to be efficient is spend uh, about 30 minutes discussing uh, this awesome but difficult to understand doctrine. And um, I'm going to, I've listed several questions that we are going to go through. And then I'd like to open it up to you guys when we're done. And certainly we can carry this discussion for Wednesday night into our community group. I think that would be most edifying. Um, and if, you're, if you have a question afterwards and it just can't wait, certainly ask me. All right. So let me begin with an analogy I've used before when I've discussed this doctrine. It's an analogy that I've used to try to describe in biblical terms what is God's election and his predestination and foreknowledge of those he saves. So imagine with me that you have passengers boarding a plane. In eternity past, God is the one who chose who those passengers would be, every single one of them by name. That is election. It's personal. It's very clear. It's not God had some vague idea, didn't know who this lottery of souls would be, and, and you turned out to be one of them. No, he chose you. In eternity past, God chose who the passengers would be. In time, God gave these passengers their boarding pass so that they entered into the plane, and that is representative of, of course, salvation, regeneration, conversion, the moment in time where you came into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And God is the one who saves each and every one he chose and places them into his son, Jesus Christ, just like these board passengers are boarding into the plane. But Christ, or in Christ, God has also predestined us to arrive at and experience all of the blessings that he intends for his son. And that is what the doctrine of predestination is about. Just as these passengers aboard this aircraft will go wherever the plane takes them, so God's people are predestined to arrive at wherever Jesus Christ takes them. That is the doctrine of election, predestination, and in summary then foreknowledge is this idea that God knew who the passengers would be that he would choose, and he knew he would give them their boarding pass at a particular time in history so that they would board 
this plane, and he knew not only who they were, but everything about them and what by his grace he would make of them. And secure aboard this plane, God knew the flight itinerary he would chart for these passengers, and he knew how that the plane would bring them to arrive at his determined destination. That's foreknowledge, predestination, election. All right. Now, I want us to move on to some questions, because that certainly raises several questions. And I have six here, and there are certainly many more that these questions will raise. Some of these questions are, represent a cluster of questions. But the first of these that really comes up when we discuss election and predestination is the question, is God really sovereign over everything? Now, I don't know any Christian that doubts that God is sovereign. In fact, if you believe in God, then in some sense you believe by the right of the fact he's God, he is sovereign in some sense. But the question is really, to what extent is God sovereign? Sovereign over what? Is God sovereign over everything? Well, that's a question, and that is debated, even among Christians. Let me give you a couple of biblical reasons we know God is sovereign over all that happens in our world, even over evil and over human choices. First, the biblical portrait of God is consistently that of the Almighty, the Almighty Sovereign, who is both creator and sustainer of all that is. In fact, you could jot down Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 where we see that he not only creates everything, but he holds everything together. All things were created by him and for him. That's our God. He's the almighty God of Revelation 1.8. David said in Psalm 139.4, even before there is a word on my tongue, now think about this, even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. I don't know how else to interpret that other than to say, God knows everything. God knows the end from the beginning. Isaiah 40 asks the question, who can teach God anything that he doesn't already know? And the answer is no one. But there's a challenge that arises. Someone will say, but what about places in the Bible where God describes himself as being surprised, like discovering something or changing his mind? There are expressions in Scripture that appear like that. One would be in Genesis 22, for instance. God says to Abraham, after he's put his son Isaac on the altar and is about to slay him, God says to Abraham, do not stretch out your hand against the lad Isaac, for now I know that you fear God. And that would insinuate to some that God did not know prior to this moment what Abraham would do with Isaac. And so their, their understanding of this text is God was actually learning something. God didn't genuinely know what Abraham would do. But if God were himself in the process of learning that would mean God himself were in the process of change. God himself were subject to time. And if that is the case, that raises a couple absurdities. Uh, for one thing, it would mean that there were some higher power or principle beyond God himself. Now, I wish we had more time to talk about this. But even like the ancient Greeks, for instance, Zeus is kind of the god of their gods over the Greek pantheon, right, or Parthenon. And yet, Zeus himself is subject to fate. There is a higher power. And Christians who believe that God is in a process of change, figuring things out, are Christians that are, whether intentionally or unintentionally, conceding that there is a higher power or principle beyond God. And that is simply not what the scriptures teach us about the Lord the Almighty, who created time and space. So, 
Christians who read Genesis 22 and mistake God as in a process of learning, they are committing the same error that Mormons are committing when they come to the Bible and they say, oh, God has hands, feet, eyes, and ears. And they say, therefore, God has a body like us. What are they doing? They are misinterpreting the scriptures. God doesn't learn anything because he knows everything. And yet God often describes himself and his actions, such as his surprise when he looks at the world and he's surprised. He uses this language to relate to human beings. It is uh, the fact that God communicates to humans in an analogical way. There is a relationship there. There's a similarity between what God's feeling and what we're feeling, but there's also a vast difference. God is unlike anything we know. He is God. He's the creator. John Calvin once said, God lisps to us in Scripture, and he does so so that we, from our finite position, can possibly and better comprehend him. Now, in addition here, we have to wrestle with this fact that if God is not sovereign over everything, that is over evil and human actions included, then he's not truly sovereign over anything. If God isn't sovereign over everything, then he's not truly sovereign over anything. That is, if God didn't already know, going back to Abraham in Genesis 22, if he didn't know for certain what Abraham or other humans would do, then he wouldn't be able to know for certain the future. If he didn't know that Abraham for certain would trust him and believe him, he would not know for certain how he could use Abraham in his plan. And so what happens is it it means that God would lack absolute certainty about the future, which means the very prophecies of Scripture are nothing more than really what? God's most excellent guesswork. How do you feel about that? (laughs) We're so glad that uh, God was right about Jesus going to the cross and all that, but it's possible that he could have been wrong. Um, That's a serious problem. And to illustrate how serious a problem this is, just consider how historians talk about how a single event changes the course of history. Have you ever heard about uh, the poem, the old poem, For One of a Nail? For one of a nail, a shoe was lost. For one of a shoe, the horse was lost. For one of a horse, the rider was lost. For one of a rider, the message was lost. For one of a message, the battle was lost. For one of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail. Uh, The fact of the matter is that if there's one inconvenient fact in the universe that God doesn't sovereignly control, then God isn't in control of everything, which means God isn't really in control of anything because how do we know that that one molecule floating out in space isn't somehow that fact, that inconvenient factor that will undo God's sovereign plan? Well, that's certainly not what the scriptures teach us because Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, it says that we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, now, now, don't miss this, who works all things after the counsel of his own will. How much does God control? How much does he work for the counsel of his own will? All things. And scripture gives plenty of examples of how God is even sovereign over the devil and his angels and how God is even sovereign over human choices. Job chapter 1 and 2 are a great example of where Satan himself can accomplish nothing aside from the permission of God. Isaiah 45 talks about how God asserts his authority over the decisions of a foreign Persian king yet to be born named Cyrus. Is God sovereign over human choices? 
Is God sovereign over the devil? Absolutely. The Bible teaches God is sovereign over everything. But there's another challenge that arises then. What about the fact that Scripture tells us there are clearly things that happen on earth contrary to the will of God? We understand there are things going on in this world that displease the Lord. Jesus told us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And why do we pray that? Because it is not presently being done on earth as it should be. So does that mean this is out of God's control? What's happening here? Well, theologians distinguish between God's sovereign will and his moral will. And we should too, because I, I believe we see this in Scripture. God is a sovereign will by which he controls. It is the counsel of his will by which he orders all things and ordains all that is. But he also has a moral will very clearly revealed in Scripture. And that is that which pleases him. That is which, that is that which is consistent with his own good and perfect moral nature. To put it another way, what God sovereignly ordains to happen is not necessarily what he himself approves of. But God sovereignly ordains whatever happens and even allows certain things which displease him in order to bring about a greater good. Now, there are different examples of things God ordains that even involve what displeases him in order to bring about a greater good. Can you think of what some of those would be? Yes. Hurricanes, okay. And I think we might be puzzled at how God could use a hurricane, like Hurricane Sandy or Hurricane Katrina, for some good reason. The answers to these questions are not uh, answers that we have. Scripture doesn't give us all of um, the, the particular scenarios. What is God doing in this situation, right? But we could give a couple, I think there's a couple answers that we could give from the Bible. For one is the existence of human choice itself. God didn't have to give us choice, but by giving us freedom and the ability to love, he gave us the ability to hate him and reject him, which we have done. And in God's mind and his infinite wisdom, God was willing to do that. He was willing to give freedom to humanity for the greater good of creating beings that genuinely can love him. Not forced to love him, but genuinely love him. Or ultimately, here's the ultimate example. The atoning death of Jesus on the cross. Did God approve of what sinners did to Christ on the cross? Absolutely not. God is no cosmic sadist. And he did not approve of what those men were doing to his son. And yet, God ordained it to bring about a greater good. So understand, God is sovereign. And he... Has his sovereign will will be accomplished, but not everything that happens according to God's sovereign will is necessarily his moral will. We could think of many examples. So, God is sovereign over anything that happens, over everything that happens. Now, Scripture is very plain about that. We could talk a lot more about that. You may have questions about that, but this raises more questions. Another question is, doesn't God's sovereignty eliminate human freedom? Now, Maybe you've not thought a lot about this, but this is very troubling to many people. This is one reason, allegedly, people say, I can't believe in God, because then we don't have human freedom. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, a lot of the existentialists, found that this was a great reason. They, they just could not believe in God, because if there's a God out there who controls everything, then we aren't really free. We will not have a biblical understanding of God's sovereignty, though, 
if we have an unbiblical view of human freedom. We can't truly understand God's sovereignty according to the Bible if we don't understand what the Bible teaches about human freedom. So what does Scripture teach about human freedom? Actually, the word free will appears, do you know how many times in the Bible? Zero. So, (laughs) we can derive a biblical understanding of human freedom, but we have to do so by keeping a hold of two clear biblical truths. And if you let go of either one of these truths, you have a very unbiblical view of human freedom. The first truth you must hold on to is the truth of God's sovereignty. The fact that God is in control. God is 100% in control. And your choice does not eliminate God's freedom. Your choice, your, your uh, freedom doesn't limit God's freedom. God is unlimited in his freedom. But the other truth that we must hold on to is that Scripture plainly teaches equally that human beings are 100% responsible for their choices. There is no shirking your responsibility by pointing to God and saying, you made me like this. You determined I would do that. It's your fault. Scripture never once gives us that out. It teaches the opposite, that man is responsible for his choices. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. Now, the Bible doesn't teach that humans, then, are supercomputers. They're simply extremely complex, but we are we are just simply putting out what God put into us. So it's all, it's all to blame with God. There's no genuine love, no genuine hate, no genuine sin. That would be impossible if we were merely computers that were entirely pre-programmed, however complex. But here's the Bible's way of reconciling in God's sovereignty with genuine human responsibility. And that lies in knowing God is absolutely free, but your freedom is limited in two ways. Okay, your freedom is, our freedom is not absolute, right, like God's. I think we all know that. It's limited in two ways, and the first way is obvious. First, we are only free to choose from God's predetermined options. It's kind of like, you know, when I walk into my favorite New York City diner, I'm given a menu, and I am given a list of choices, and I can choose from the menu, but I can't just choose anything, can I? And if you didn't notice, you didn't get to choose when you were born, where you were born, how you were born what your name would be. You didn't get to choose your gender. (laughs) By the way, we don't make those choices. That's reality. You can't be Superman. You are limited to the options that God predetermined for you. How's that humbling for you? That's reality. But the Bible also teaches that we are free only we are only free to choose according to our desires. So we are only free to choose according to God's predetermined options and the Bible also teaches we are only free to choose according to our own desires. This is very important. The Bible teaches humans are free, yes, but only to do what they want. We are free to do what we want. This is a reality according to which all humans live. We choose according to our desires. People anywhere, everywhere, in any religion, in any country, in any time of history, are people who do what they want. I know that's so profound, but it is. It's very biblical. And we might think of counterexamples. What about an ascetic monk who deprives himself of food and marriage and all these things? Well, even that ascetic monk is doing so because he is falling. He's pursuing a higher desire, namely some spiritual desire or something like that. But we can't 
we can't avoid this reality that our freedom is bound to choose what we desire. Even if your choices are suddenly limited, like somebody puts a gun to your head, you are still free. You are always free to react in the way you do. And you're responsible for that reaction you make. Okay, so I hope I'm playing here, okay? God's sovereign. We aren't. We are free because the Bible teaches we are responsible, but we are free in a limited sense. We are free in the sense that God gave us limited options, and we are free, or I should say, our freedom is limited in the sense that God gave us predetermined options, and we are free only to choose according to our desires. And if we're free only to choose according to our desires, think about this. Scripture teaches that's why we are 100% responsible for our choices, like in Ezekiel 18, or even in uh, Galatians 6, 7, you reap what you sow. Why? How's that fair? God predetermined it. No, you are doing what you want. And this morning, you're doing what you want. You are free to choose according to your desires. But scripture also teaches this. Now, here's the rub. That our human will is enslaved to sinful desire. Isn't that true? Romans 3.11 says, there is none who seeks God. And I can give you many other statements to that effect. They're very troubling. Uh, it almost seems to undermine our freedom, but it shows us our freedom is enslaved to our sinful desires. This is a fact all too apparent. If we're honest with ourselves, we're free to choose what we want. Yes, yay, human freedom, let's celebrate it, right? The problem is we don't genuinely in our heart of hearts want God, do we? We don't. We want the things of the world. We want sin. Jesus said, John 8 to the uh, Pharisees, 844, the lusts of your father, the devil, you will do. You're a slave to him. So we're free to choose what we want. The problem is we don't want God. What's needed then is not merely a new commandment, a new law, but what? A new heart. A heart that gives us new and genuine desire for God. So the answer to the second question then is that God's sovereignty only eliminates the kind of freedom that an atheist believes in. Because an atheist doesn't believe in a sovereign God. But God's sovereignty does not eliminate the freedom or, or the reality of our free choices. Choices that we make according to our desires. That's the kind of freedom the biblical, uh, of the biblical view. Now let's apply this to salvation. Because I think that's probably where this question is going anyway. In discussion of election and predestination. So go to John 6, 44. John 6, 44. Maybe you're wondering, well, what about when it comes to believing on Christ? And statements in scripture like, whosoever will, let him come. Can we just simply, so we can simply come to Jesus? Yes. God's sovereignty does not invalidate the reality of human choice according to our own desires. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I, I know this will be recorded so you can listen to it again, but if you guys have questions, jot them down, okay? So listen to Jesus, though, in John 6, 44. He says, No man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The question is, if God is sovereign over our salvation, then are we actually free to choose Christ for ourselves? And one place where Jesus himself answers this is simply no. He says, no man can come to me unless the Father sent me, draws him. Now, why is that? Why can't sinners simply come to Jesus? 
because sinners don't want Jesus. Sinners can't come to Jesus because sinners won't come to Jesus. They want what? Sin. They want to be God of their own lives. That is the human problem. It's a sin problem. And Ephesians 2 describes the human condition without God as this bleak. It says we are dead in sin. That's pretty bleak. That's pretty bad. According to the Bible, if any sinner is going to be set free from sin, God needs to, according to Ephesians 2, make them alive. Or like Jesus is saying in John 6, God the Father needs to draw them to himself. God must initiate. Romans chapter 3. We don't seek after God. That's actually, Paul's actually drawing after Isaiah 53. All we like sheep, we turn astray. We go our own way. God, the shepherd, has to come looking for us. No man can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. God must open our hearts like Acts 16, 14, like he did for Lydia. Uh, Lydia. He must give us a heart of flesh and take our heart of stone. This is God's work, not our work. But to say that God must divinely draw a sinner before they will be saved, that doesn't mean then that sinners come kicking and screaming. Okay, Sometimes theologians have used a term called irresistible grace. Get this idea that God irresistibly draws sinners. So here's this sinner, you know, he's fighting it, but oh, God won, you know. Uh, well, I know what they're saying there, but I want us to understand, according to the Bible, when God draws a man or a woman, that sinner comes willingly because God changes your heart. He changes your desires, right? And if you have come to know Jesus Christ, some of this is just so, it's relatable to our experience. Here's an example I've used before. God knew from eternity past that Anna and I would be married. And, and he foreordained that. It was part of his sovereign plan. But did that mean that she or I had no say in the matter? That we had no choice? Absolutely not. Okay? That would take all the fun out of marriage, right? No, I, I don't believe that we're just pawns that God's moving around a chessboard. And we weren't simply uh, drawn irresistibly to each other against our will. Of course not. The fact that God predetermined our relationship with each other does not mean that we both married without choice. But the fact that God sovereignly drew us together in his infinite wisdom means that he took a relationship that was merely possible and he made it actual. And when it comes to your relationship with Jesus Christ, God tells us, you would not have chosen me. <laughs> you didn't choose me, but I chose you, John 15, 16. John tells us, 1 John 4, 19, that the reason you love him is, that, is because he first loved you. From uh, Ephesians 1, 4, before the foundation of the world, God chose you in Christ according to the kind intention of his will. Yes? Right. Samantha, it's a, right, it's a great question, but remember, there are millions of questions we could ask. There's unlimited questions we could ask of the nature. Why did God in this particular situation allow this hurricane, this relationship, this abuse in my life, all these things? And it goes back to really this, something that we maybe think could be better. And we say, God, why did you allow this? But what God does tell his children, including you, is in Romans 8, 28, that he, because he's sovereign, he works all things. How many things? 
all things, including a relationship to a non-believer that you have. I could think of a better scenario here, God, a better world where I'm a billionaire somewhere on some island. Okay, no. God works all things together for good to those who love him and to those who are the call. And then he goes on to talk about, and the, the rest of the verses, the fact that when he called you, he also predestined you and foreknew you. And so I, maybe that's not all the answer we want to hear, but it's an answer of trust God because there is no mistake that he makes because he's sovereign. Good question, though. And uh, I want to say this. He's, in Ezekiel 16, God gives this imagery of his people that he chose as a harlot that has been abandoned in the streets, left for dead. And he says this amazing thing in Ezekiel 16, that I came by, I saw you there. Nothing attractive, nothing to commend you to myself, certainly nothing to commend you to a relationship with me, the Almighty God. But he says, I saw you and I loved you. And I took you to be my own. I entered into a covenant with you and you became mine. That is what the Bible teaches about our salvation. That's the picture of election. Not us choosing God, but us choosing God because God chose us. Do we love God? If you're one of his children, absolutely you do. And it's, it's nothing in, there's nothing disingenuous about that love. It's not a computer sort of a thing. You genuinely love God, but you genuinely love God because he genuinely first loved you with an eternal unconditional love so another question that arises at this point i'm gonna have to work fast here but can i know that i'm elect (laughs) can i know that i'm elect i'm chosen by god and if so how well great question go to john if you're still in john 6 go back a couple verses to uh, verse 37 john 6 37 and i think if we're asking this question how do i know i'm elect i think we're asking the wrong question because the bible never asked that question the bible tells us the question we should be asking is, have you believed on Christ? Have you believed Jesus? Have you embraced him as your Lord and Savior? Jesus said in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. That's divine election. God makes the choice. The Father chooses the bride for his son. There's no other way. And, but Jesus goes on, thank God, we're not left to wonder who that is. He says, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Now, you may have a doubt in your mind that the Father would choose you as part of the bride for his son. But the glorious thing about the Bible is you aren't left to doubt that, are you? Because Jesus says, if you will come to me, I won't cast you out. In fact, here's the reality. If you are desirous of a relationship with Jesus Christ, well, we know what the Bible's told us, that we don't desire that naturally. If you desire to repent of your sins and and return to the God, your creator who made you, and you desire a relationship with Jesus, that's because God is working on your heart. That's an exciting thing. So the first part of Jesus' statement in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. That's the reason that we give glory to God for our salvation. Jesus is plain. He makes it easy for us. He says, are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Come to me and I'll give you rest. It's simple. Any sinner who's saying, I don't know if I can come to Jesus because I don't know I'm chosen. Hey, they, if they don't come to Jesus because they're making excuses like that, they're going to be responsible. God's going to judge them because the invitation is whosoever will, right? That's plain. But in hindsight, as we look back on our decision, having come to Jesus, we recognize we came to him because 
He chose us. There's an illustration that the old commentator uh, Donald uh, Barnhouse used to use. And it's, it's that of imagining the gates of heaven. And over the gates of heaven, upon entrance, we see the words, whosoever will, let him come. And that is the universal invitation to any sinner in history. Come! Whoever you are, come. That's the gospel we preach. We don't preach, if you're elect, come. We don't check names at the door. We see whosoever will. We don't have the mind of God. We can't step into his mind. We can't play God. Whosoever will, let him come. And as we enter in to this eternal grace, though, on the other side of these gates, looking back, we see to our amazement, it says, elect before the foundation of the world. All who enter in, whosoever will, the, the invitation is universal, but all who enter in turn back and in hindsight they see, wow, I entered into Christ. I entered into the kingdom of God because I was chosen from before the foundation of the world. Election is best understood in hindsight, for it's only after coming to Christ that one can know whether or not they've been chosen in Christ. And those who make a decision for Christ will find that God made a decision for them and he did eternity to pass. And let me tell you, that's comforting if you're a true child of God. But I've talked to sinners that want to make, uh, I've actually talked to a guy who said, oh, I'm not going to come to Jesus because I don't know I'm elect. No, you don't want to come to Jesus because you don't want to repent of your sin. Because Jesus told you, if you repent of your sin and come, I will receive you. So don't accept that from people. You confront them about their sin and you call them to repentance and faith like Jesus did. Now here's another question. I have, hopefully I can get three more here in the remaining time. Why didn't God just elect everyone to salvation? How is God's choice of some fair? This is a very important question. Please turn to Romans chapter 9. If God wanted, he could certainly have drawn all sinners to himself. Now, some will try to compromise the sovereignty of God by saying he couldn't. He literally couldn't. And that's it's just not the view that Scripture teaches of God. But here's the reality. God doesn't equally pursue every sinner. He doesn't pursue Esau in the way he pursues Jacob. Look at Romans 9, 11. For though the twins, Jacob and Esau, were not yet born and had not yet done anything good or bad so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, his mother, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I just want to qualify something that throughout Scripture, the term hatred or hating Esau here is not that God from eternity past just hated Esau and despised him. You have to understand this is a Semitic expression for the fact that God chose Jacob, but he did not choose Esau. And that's a reality. And because Paul himself believes in God's particular unconditional election, to salvation, he's now anticipating the very same question we've raised. How can this choice be fair? How can this choice be fair if it rests with God and not with us, ultimately? And look at Romans 9, 14, 15. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? And here's the apostle's answer. May it never be. May genetai in the Greek. The strongest way of saying that's an absurdity. God is just. And only just. Now, verse 15, he says, For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Paul's answer is essentially this. 
as just God isn't bound to be merciful to anyone. If we deserved God's salvation, our salvation wouldn't be a mercy. Nobody is entitled to God's salvation. The Bible teaches all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you believe that, you will also have to admit that none of us, none of us is entitled to God's salvation. So God is merciful to save some, to save anyone. If God saved one sinner, that would be an incredible act of mercy. The question in the Bible isn't, why doesn't God save everyone? That answer is obvious. Because everyone is a sinner, and everyone deserves God's judgment, and God is just. Why doesn't God save everyone? God is just. The question we should be asking is, why does God save anyone? And the answer to that question is, God is merciful. Don't ever ask God for justice. Because you might get it, right? We don't want God's justice. We want God's mercy. We need God's mercy. So yes, God wants all sinners to be saved. The scriptures teach that. God's not willing that any should perish. But it also says, but that all should come to repentance. It means God doesn't want anyone to perish. But he will condemn them to perish if they do not repent. He wants all sinners to be saved. But get this. Not without repentance. Not without salvation on his terms. Now, I don't have time to answer these. The last couple questions I was going to give you is just, does God predestine the non-elect to hell? The short answer is, there's a term, double predestination, that is uh, frankly confusing because it implies that God is in the same way involved in the condemnation of the non-elect that he's involved in the election of his elect. And that would be false. That would be a misnomer. So we use the term reprobation, which means God does, from eternity past, he rejects Esau. Or he doesn't, his love passes over Esau, but it is understood in passive terms. And I don't, I, I wish I could share some of the scriptures with you. I will just say this. God is graciously active in the salvation of some sinners, while he remains righteously passive in the condemnation of others. That is God's just prerogative. I could explain more of that to you if you'd like some other time. I just don't have time. Question number six was, why evangelize if God's already chosen who will be saved? And the short answer is, because God said so. And because to evangelize, to represent Jesus Christ by giving his gospel to others is the greatest privilege you could have in this earthly life. And the fact that if you don't, you will give an account to Jesus Christ for what you did with his gospel. Even in the Old Testament, there's the idea of the watchman, right? The blood of the lost will be on your hands. But don't ever think that God's almighty plan rests on you. Because if you're saying to God, if you're thinking this morning, no, God, I'm not going to be a part of your plan. God will use someone else. And that will scare you. And that will motivate you to say, Lord, use me. (laughs) God isn't biting his nails wondering what you're going to do. But I hope you are. (laughs) I hope you're anxious to be used of God, saying, God, use me. That is the greatest privilege ever. And of course, God is glorified in our evangelism. What greater thing could we do in life? So I need to close 